Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. This week, a closer look at what Apple and Google are doing to help track the spread of COVID-19 and alert people when they need to get tested. Also, how you can tour the scene of the May 4, 1970 shootings at Kent State and see it like it was 50 years ago without having to leave home. All this and more coming up. As Ohio and other states around the country start allowing people to get back to work and resume at least some of their daily activities, the problem remains that the pandemic is nowhere near over. There is no cure and no reliably effective medicine to treat COVID-19. Also, it could take a year or more to develop and test a vaccine. In the meantime, health officials say we need to increase testing and quarantine those who come into contact with someone who tests positive. But how can you actually do that? In Ohio, public health agencies are going to hire thousands of people to do contact tracing. But on the global level, Apple and Google are actually going to build some of that capability right into people's mobile phones. CBS technology consultant Larry Maggot. What Apple and Google have done is they've created what's called an API, an application program interface. So they actually haven't built apps. They've built the underlying technology that makes it possible for other people to build apps that will create uh, essentially contact tracing. And, and it's kind of cool the way it works. The idea is, let's say you've got Susie and, and Sam that are, that are near each other. They happen to be walking by each other on the street or they encounter each other at a store or something like that. Um, Susie's phone will use Bluetooth to tell Sam's phone that, hey, I was right near you, and Sam will do the same thing to Susie. Now, it won't say Sam or Susie. It'll be a code. It'll be a secret code, basically a token. So that's, that's just done. And let's say, unfortunately, later Susie finds out she has COVID-19. Well, what will happen is she will, as a voluntarily, it's not mandatory, she will report that um, through the app. And the app will then send a token basically to anybody whose phone she was near. So Sam will know not that Susie, but that someone that has been reported to have been diagnosed with COVID-19 had been in his vicinity. And so he will then know that he has been exposed. Obviously, that doesn't mean he was infected, but it gives him reason to perhaps be tested or whatever. So it's the same thing that the CDC and other authorities or local health authorities do now, but it's very difficult when they do contact tracing, where they actually, I guess, interview people and say, who are you near? And try to figure out it. I know if you ask me for contact tracing, it'd be easy now because it's just my wife, but I'm the only person I'm near. But, you know, on a normal day, I mean, I might be around 50 more people. I don't know. If I go to a grocery store, I, it would be almost impossible for me to tell you who I'd been near, but this app would make it possible. So it's non-mandatory. It's an underlying technology. And the idea is that health authorities would actually issue the apps. I'm sure they'd be created by private companies, but they'd be issued by health authorities, not by Apple and Google. That sounds really interesting. So then that means if I had it and then let's say the cashier at the grocery store or other people that were shopping there also had it, then even mm -hmm. if I don't know all those people and 
we'll never see them again that the right. authorities could trace that then right right they could know that so and and again it, it, it's all voluntary you would have to enter the data in fact what would happen is it wouldn't even be the health authority so much as it would be the person it would the person would get a notice saying that you have come into contact with someone with covid-19 or who's been diagnosed so that's the concept. You know, as with anything else, the details have to be ironed out. Both Apple and Google swear up and down that they get no data when it comes to actually identity of people or locations. And they say that authorities don't get that data either. So it's not like the government is tracking. That's the big fear, right? We already know that Google and Apple are capable of tracking us. I mean, that's how navigation apps work. It's built into the phones. But one of the big fears is we don't want the government necessarily you know a lot of people are concerned they don't want the government knowing where they are at least in terms of what i'm understanding the government wouldn't know where sam is located it would only know that somebody with covid-19 had come into contact with another person at least that's that's how these apps have been explained to people and that sounds really good to me it's just that based on some of the things that have happened in the past, the data that was guaranteed, or at least you were assured that it was anonymized, it turned out it really wasn't. Yeah, you know, there are so many privacy risks when it comes to technology. And the fact that we already are disclosing our location, if you're walking around with a cell phone and unless you've turned off location, then the servers are knowing your location. That's the only way you could possibly use Google Maps or any other navigation or location app, and there's so many out there. It's also how, in the case of a, of a tragedy, authorities can locate you. There have been plenty of cases where people have driven off a cliff or something like that and might have died had it not been for the fact that authorities were able to ping their phone, locate them, and rescue them. This Monday marks the 50th anniversary of the anti-Vietnam War protest rally at Kent State University when Ohio National Guardsmen killed four students and wounded nine others. Those shootings rocked the nation and many people believe they helped end the war. The 50th anniversary commemoration was supposed to be a major event with big-name speakers like actress and political activist Jane Fonda and a concert featuring David Crosby and Joe Walsh. But all that fizzled out when the campus had to shut down because of the pandemic. Now all the commemorative events are happening online, starting with a video tribute on Monday, May 4th at noon. But there's more. As Learning Technologies professor Rick Ferdig tells us, now you can visit the site of the shootings and see it both as it is today and as it was 50 years ago using mobile augmented reality. The way that this works is if you're on campus, you would literally hold up your phone and the phone would use your camera to show the kind of current context and then it would overlay the historic image. If you're off campus, what you do is you go to the website and you visit these hotspots and instead of using your camera or your desktop's uh, camera, what it does is it brings up a current 360-degree image of Kent State's campus, and then it overlays that image on top of what you're seeing. And as you're seeing that image, it also has an audio clip uh, describing what you're seeing. And then we have an audio and visual library of other historical resources to help supplement your learning. And the, the really cool thing for us, I mean, we were so excited about the ability to provide this resource for people who may not be able to come to campus. 
we had no idea when we submitted this grant and received this grant on March 1st that essentially the entire campus would be shut down. And so it went from a really interesting supplemental resource for people on campus and a great alternative for people who can't be on campus all of a sudden became a main opportunity for people to honor and commemorate the 50th while none of us can actually be on campus. So if somebody who wasn't on campus, which would be everybody now, how do they get to it? What's the URL? Anyone who wants to visit the site can go to may4xr.kent.edu. That's may4xr.kent.edu. And when they visit that website, they'll learn a little bit more about our project and why we created it. They'll have an opportunity to share their own voice for change. So if they were there or after they view the materials, they have an opportunity to be a participant in the conversation. The main attraction, obviously, will be the tour. And so when they go to the website, they just click on Start the Tour, and they'll get a set of instructions that walks them through how to visit the various hotspots. Right now, we have seven hotspots that, again, tie to key historical events surrounding May 4, 1970. When they click on a hotspot, they learn about why that hotspot is important. And then they can also click a menu that allows them to get additional information. So all this just must be so impactful because nobody can go to campus, right? Yeah. So I think what we've learned from our research on the use of technology for learning is that technology can provide a way to get access to content, to show people things in ways that we couldn't do without the technology. So again, when we got this grant, we were excited about what we might be able to give people, particularly in contexts where we're trying to show them buildings that no longer exist. But I'll be honest, we had no idea, I don't think anybody had a clue that we would get to May 4th, 2020, and no one would be able to be on campus. So the fact that people can still commemorate through this experience in their own living rooms across the world through the use of this technology is just such a blessing. And that's it for now. Thanks for listening. Stay happy and healthy, and I'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590-WAKR and WAKR.net. <laughs>